Well, good evening. It's a pleasure to be with you again. Please turn in your Bibles to Haggai chapter 2. We've got a lot to cover, so strap in. This is a good chapter. Um, trying to think of something that's instantaneous. Light travels at an incredible speed. Uh, scientists calculate that light travels at about 186,000 miles per second. To give you a little bit of idea of how fast that is, uh, the Earth's circumference is 25,000 miles around. So if you could travel at the speed of light, you would go around the world seven and a half times per second. Right? I mean, that's really, really quick. We obviously can't see light traveling. It's just absolutely instantaneous to me, instantaneous to all of us, not just to me. Um, now, even if we don't know the numbers, just practically speaking from our experience, we know this to be true, right? You don't, you don't walk up to a light switch and think, oh, I don't know, I mean, it's going to take so long for the light to get to me. Is it even worth it? Like, you know as soon as you flip that switch, the light is on before you can turn your head around. It arrives instantaneously. And though it's a little bit cliche, right, what, what's faster than light? What's faster than light is the blessing of God's forgiveness. When you repent and you ask God for forgiveness, you don't wait for it to come. When you pray for forgiveness, it's yours before you open your eyes. It's absolutely instantaneous. And this should be strong motivation for us to obey, to live in the light of God's blessing. Christ has already done all the work. He exclaimed, it is finished. And so often as Christians, we don't live in light of that truth. We get discouraged, we get cast down, just like the Israelites were in Haggai chapter 2. And God comes to them with this message of great encouragement. Haggai chapter 2. The message is essentially, don't be discouraged, don't lose heart, don't grow weary in doing good. Yahweh blesses you the instant you obey. It is instant and everlasting blessing. So we'll divide this chapter up in, in five ways, five reasons to obey eagerly. First, because Yahweh stands ready to bless. Yahweh promises to bless. Yahweh removes blessing because of our sin, but he blesses despite past sin, and he will bless through his king. We'll see that at the end. I'll repeat the points as we go along. You remember uh, context here that the remnant returned to the land after 70 years in Babylon. And they were dealing with great discouragement because even though they were back in the land, they felt like they were slaves of Persia. The glory days really were over. Uh, they kind of laid the foundation, but they got discouraged. They abandoned the work for 16 years. And then God sent Haggai to encourage them, to exhort them in chapter 1. And they start building, and just as they're kind of starting to build, discouragement is sneaking in again, and God comes to them a second time in the second chapter and gives them this great encouragement. First reason to obey, Yahweh is waiting to bless. Look at verse 1 of, verse one of chapter 2. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of Yahweh came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, saying, again, Haggai's just repeating this phrase over and over. I'm Yahweh's messenger. He's speaking through me. Uh, Haggai dates this prophecy as well. We're exactly one month after 
they decide to obey in chapter 1, verse 15. You say, oh, they've been disobeying for a month. Well, not really, because the seventh month in the Jewish calendar was the month completely filled with feasts, and they could not work during those feasts according to the law. So they're not sitting around to uh, just disobeying God. In fact, this word came to them at the very end of the Feast of Booths, uh, in described in Leviticus 23, verses 33 through 36. So Israel's living in tents for a week. They're not able to work. Uh, they're being reminded of God's faithfulness to bring them out of the Exodus. And another interesting fact is that in this same month, according to 1 Kings 8, it was the exact moment that the first temple was inaugurated and dedicated. So it's the anniversary of the completion of the Solomonic Temple. They're living in tents, and they're thinking about this fact that, man, the glory days are over, like the glory days of the gold and the silver. And so verse 2, Speak now to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, to the remnant of the people, saying, so again, Israel, and now all of her leaders are addressed. And here's the question. Who among you remains who saw this house in its former glory? Who of you saw Solomon's temple? Well, not a lot at this point. This is 66 years after the destruction of the temple. But there were just enough of them to turn the people into being discouraged. Right? Just 10 spies caused a million people to... Uh, get discouraged and not enter the land. And so these, these older folks, they're, they're discouraged. They're discouraged in a similar way that they were 16 years prior when they laid the foundation of the temple. In Ezra 3, we read about that. Ezra 3, verse 12, it says that many of the priests and the Levites and the head of the father's households, the old men who had seen the first house of Yahweh, were weeping with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes. Because uh, they've seen the splendor of, Yah- of Solomon's temple. Uh, they've lost that, and they're weeping. And then they discourage the people. And that should be a reminder to us that our words have great power to either encourage or discourage our brethren. We should never speak words that discourage. Peter tells us in First Peter 4, right? Let him who speaks, speaks as the very oracles of God to build up one another. Haggai continues, and how do you see it now? Does it not seem like nothing in your eyes? <laughs> I love how God doesn't sugarcoat this. I mean, it's like this temple is nothing, right? He, he knows what they're thinking. And, and it was true. I mean, this temple would never have the Shekinah glory. It would be small, But that's not the issue because they could still worship Yahweh in it. And that is, like we saw last week, the most essential action in the universe. The issue was their pride in wanting this big, majestic temple. But God's not impressed by our big accomplishments. Big or small to us is all tiny to God. It's irrelevant. He's just looking for faithful obedience. But this false expectation and desire was leading to their despair. False expectations are often the quickest recipe for discouragement. Thinking God owes you something. Thinking you deserve something. Remembering when things were better. When my kids were still home. When I had my health. Woe is me. And then roots of bitterness start to take hold. Israel says, our temple is is tiny. It's, It's nothing. 
And Yahweh says, yes, it's nothing. But I did not ask you to build me a mansion. I asked you to joyfully worship me with what you have. Paul says a similar thing when he says, we have nothing in this world, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Or Zechariah, who's preaching at a similar time, Zechariah 4, verse 10 says, For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice. The idea is just wait and hope for God to bless. God is going to do a great thing. Don't despise the day of small things because God's got a plan. That's a great message for all of us today who might be discouraged. God, God sees our situation. God knows that we are dust. But he comes to encourage, to know that he's with us, to know that he's for us. The day of small things will not last forever. The king of glory is returning to this earth. We need to trust him. Also, a quick theological note there at the end of verse 3. Notice that God sees what we think of as different temples, as different iterations of this same temple. Solomon's temple, Zerubbabel's temple, Ezekiel's temple. Solomon's temple here was this house in its former glory. So that's going to become important as we think about the future temple. It's the same temple in God's mind, just different iterations of it. Verse 4, but now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares Yahweh. Be strong also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And all you people of the land, be strong, declares Yahweh, and work, for I am with you, declares Yahweh of hosts. Be strong, repeated three times with every single group. Be strong and work. Apparently, we need to hear this message. Be strong. It's such a common command in Scripture. We're we're weak. We're easily discouraged. And we need fortitude and strength. It's the same command God gives Moses in Deuteronomy 31. Be strong. Same command God gives to Joshua. Joshua 1.8. Be strong. Same command David gives to his son Solomon when he's about to build the temple. Yahweh has chosen you to build a house for a sanctuary. Be strong and act. Same message the psalmist gives to the people of Israel. Hope in Yahweh. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Hope in Yahweh. Psalm 27 to 14. But what I love about this is that it's not be strong on your own. It's not be strong in your own strength. It says be strong because I am with you. We saw that last week. Be strong because Yahweh is your strength. And that's really good news for a weak, skinny guy like me. I don't have to be strong in my strength. Yahweh promises to be with us, to work through us, to give us his power to accomplish his purposes. Now, how much is he with us? Look at verse 5. As for the promise which I cut with you when you came out of Egypt... My spirit is standing in your midst. Do not fear. Remember again that Israel feels like they're slaves of Persia. And Yahweh says, just as I covenanted to be with Israel in the Exodus, and my spirit was mightily with them, Yahweh's spirit is now standing ready and willing to enable them to finish the temple. In fact, that word standing is the same word that Moses has used in Exodus 33, 9 and 10 to describe the pillar of cloud that stood above the people. You remember the the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire. 
which represented the power of Yahweh in their midst. So the idea is, do not fear. Why would you fear? The spirit of the Exodus stood in their midst. The God of the plagues, the God that sent the Red Sea waters fleeing. It's an abundant power offered through God's spirit. Same message of Zechariah 4. Not by might, not by power, but my, my spirit. As if God is saying, you want to dwell in the past? You want to think about the, the, the good old days of the past? Well, don't think about Solomon. Think about the Exodus. Think about your deliverance there. Think about my power there, because that's the power I offer you now. I stand in your midst, enabling you to finish this work. So build my temple and worship me. So <laughs> applicable for us today, right? I mean, that same spirit of Yahweh now dwells in us, enabling us, energizing us. He's mighty to save. He's mighty to sanctify. If you're a Christian today and you tell me that you can't obey one of God's commands, I say that's nonsense. That is utter nonsense. The all-powerful spirit of Yahweh our ever-present help in time of need, our paraclete, our helper. He stands ready to help his people. He works in us, Philippians 2, to work for his good pleasure. Never an excuse to not obey. Another quick theological note here for those of you unfamiliar with the the term that God is cutting a covenant there in verse 5. Remember that covenants are cut in the Bible Because animals were killed, blood was spilt in order to form this very solemn contract, which obviously is a a very vivid reminder for us that the reason the Spirit stands ready to help us today is because blood was spilt in the new covenant. Jesus cut a new covenant with us when he shed his blood on the cross for us. And now that God has given us his very Son, He is with us. He is for us. There can be no one against us. No one to fear. Not while the Spirit of Yahweh dwells within us. So God promises. God promises an abundant help to enable them to obey. Second reason to obey, verse 6. Yahweh promises to bless. Thus says Yahweh of hosts once more in a little while. I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also, and the dry land. Once again, Haggai reminds them of the divine origin of his prophecy. Thus says Yahweh of hosts. He connects it with the previous verse, with the for, the because. They should not fear because in a little while, obviously a little while in God's timing, uh, days like thousand years, thousand years to us is like a day to him, Second Peter 3. And he says, very soon, I'm going to shake the earth once more. Once more implies two things, right? First implies that he's done it before. This is not his first time. And that's a reference in the context to the Exodus. Uh, Exodus 19, 18. uh, Remember, God came down from heaven with fire and smoke. And the whole mountain of of Sinai shook at a violent quake. But the fact that it says here that he's going to shake it once more implies that there's only going to be one more. Like there's just one final shake, the end times quake. Nothing like it. Because in contrast to the Exodus, when God only took, 
only shook Sinai. In this last quake, God is going to shake the cosmos in all four directions. He's going to shake it vertically up on through the heavens, the stars and the planets down to the earth, and then horizontally the sea and the dry land. The idea is that he's shaking everything. This is Zephaniah 1, the day of the Lord, the shaking of all things. Uh, Matthew 24, 29, the second coming, Jesus says, the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. That's actually the author of Hebrews who interprets this verse for us. He quotes it in Hebrews 12, 27 through 29, quotes it perfectly, interprets it in its context. Author of Hebrews says, now this expression yet once more indicates the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Application, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable servants with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The idea is that God is going to shake the entire universe, the entire cosmos. He's going to shake it of everything that's wrong. He's going to get it all out. And the only thing that's going to be left after God shakes all the wrong out of this world is his unshakable kingdom, his perfect kingdom. And that hope, that, that hope of God's future promise of this perfect kingdom to come should fill our hearts with joy and gratitude, wiping away any discouragement and enabling us to serve God and worship God with fear and with awe. Another thing this shaking will accomplish, verse 7, says, I will shake the nations and they will come with the desirable things of all nations and I will fill this house with glory, says Yahweh of hosts. There's a lot of debate throughout the centuries about this phrase, the desirable things of all nations. It, it could refer to Christ, but I think probably the easiest way to understand this is that what the nations desire is material treasure. That's how the word is generally used in the Bible. The desirable things of all nations are gold and silver. That's actually what he mentions, is, mentions in the next verse. Notice the silver is mine and the gold is mine. So in the context, Israel is discouraged that their temple is small and unimpressive. And God promises, I'm going to shake this world of their treasure. It's like God is going to pick up the Persian king and all the kings of the world, and he's going to turn them upside down and shake them until all the coins fall out of their pockets, and then take all that treasure and give it to Israel. And when that happens, there's going to be plenty of splendor, plenty of uh, gold and silver for this future temple. And this is something that the Old Testament promises repeatedly. A couple of texts for you. Isaiah 60, verse 5. The wealth of the nations will come to you. Zechariah 14, 14. The wealth of all the surrounding nations will be gathered, gold and silver and garments in great abundance. And they will go up to Jerusalem from year to year to worship the King, Yahweh of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. But then Haggai adds something, not only the desirable things of all nations, it then adds, and I will fill this house with, house with glory. And when God says, and I'm going to fill the temple with glory, I think he's foreshadowing that he's not just talking about gold and silver. Because in the Old Testament, when, 
when we talk about the temple being filled with glory, we're talking about God's very presence, right? Exodus 40, 34, the glory of Yahweh is what fills the tabernacle. 1 Kings 8, 10, it's the glory of Yahweh that fills the temple. But then you remember in Ezekiel 10, the Shekinah glory abandons the temple and it never returns to Zerubbabel's temple. So I believe that God is promising, like he did in Ezekiel 43, that one day the glory of Yahweh would fill the temple once more. Because the great prophet, priest, and king, Christ, the glory of God incarnate will dwell in it. Like the vision that Isaiah sees of Christ filling the temple, seated on the throne in the train of his robe, filling the temple with glory. So the Shekinah glory never returns to Zerubbabel's temple, but God is promising that someday he will. It's a guarantee. Notice verse 9. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says Yahweh of hosts. The former house is Solomon's iteration of the temple. The latter glory would be the temple shown to us through Ezekiel and his vision. It's going to be a temple filled with splendor and glory and filled particularly with the glory of Christ our Savior. There's also a lot of other uh, things that the Bible says about the temple uh, in the New Testament. Uh, one fascinating thought is in Luke 2, verse 32, there's a sort of foreshadowing, I think, of this promise. You remember that Jesus is brought into the temple for his circumcision when he's just eight days old. And Simeon picks up baby Jesus into his arms. And in the spirit, he prays to God. He's holding Jesus in the temple and he cries out, this is the glory of the glory of your people, Israel. And that's, I think, a preview of things to come. Uh, also interesting, Jesus calls his very body the temple. Destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. Uh, because Jesus' body, right, the fullness of the deity dwelled in Jesus bodily. Ultimately, Revelation twenty-one twenty-two says that in eternity, God the Almighty and the Lamb will be our temple. God will dwell with us. And there's nothing, nothing more glorious than that thought, that we will dwell with God. We will dwell with the Lamb. Haggai 2.9, And in this place I will give peace, declares Yahweh of hosts. Peace in, in Hebrew thought, shalom, right, is more than just a ceasing of military conflict, more than just no war. It's this complete wholeness, this this peace with God. Again, a ministry begun by Christ in his first coming and ultimately fulfilled in eternity when we will experience perfect peace with God, reigning with Christ upon a new earth. And again, does this not encourage you? I mean, how could you be discouraged while you're thinking and meditating upon all of these beautiful truths? The day of small things will turn into a day full of glory, the glory of Christ will dwell on this earth one day again. We will see him face to face. It's in Christ, it's in Christ's face that the glory of God shines in all its strength. Verse 10, a third reason to obey. A little shift here. You want to obey because you're not going to be blessed if you're in sin. Verse 10. On the 24th of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of Yahweh came to Haggai the prophet saying, 
This is now the third message that comes to Haggai. This is two months later. In chapter 2, verse 1, it was the seventh month. Now we're in the ninth month. The day is December 18th, 520 B.C. We're still in the time of Gentile reign, the second year of Darius. And God sent his word again, no longer by the hand of Haggai. This is presented a little bit more directly. Verse 11 says, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, Ask now the priests about the law. Verse 12, If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with this fold or cooked wine, forgive me, if a man, we'll start again at verse 12, if a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with this fold or cooked, wine, cooked food, wine, oil, or any other food, will it become holy? So Haggai's instructed to ask this question of the priests. They're the ones who taught the law. They were the experts on the law, Deuteronomy 33.10. And Haggai asks, okay, so a man has some holy meat, that is meat that's been separated and dedicated to Yahweh, and he has it in the fold of his garment. It may sound unsanitary to us, <laughs> but back in that day, this would be a, a way to protect the meat, keep it from contamination. And the question is, can the holiness of that meat be transferred to other foods? Common foods that are mentioned, bread, wine, oil. And what do the priests say? No, obviously not. It's not that easy. You can't just transfer holiness. Only God is intrinsically holy. Only things he touched become holy. Sinful and common things can only become holy through sacrifice. Exodus 29, 21, the blood of a sacrificed animal can make a sinner clean, but not meat. You can't just transfer holiness from meat to some other food. Well, then look at verse 13. And Haggai said, if one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? So Leviticus 21, 11, if someone touches a corpse, he becomes unclean. And if he's in that state of uncleanliness and he touches some food, does the food become unclean? And the priest says, unclean. Yes, of course it will become unclean. You don't want to touch a dead body and then your sandwich. It's a bad idea. Holiness cannot be transferred, but sin is transferred very easily. Right? One commentator illustrates, you can catch a cold from me, but I can't catch your wellness, right? Sin is transferred easily. Holiness is not. And that's true of all sinners. It's true of every single human being except one. Because Jesus touched the leper, and instead of getting leprosy, Jesus' holiness and cleanness overwhelmed that leper and cleansed him. He is so intrinsically holy that whatever he touches becomes clean. But the point in this context is that the exact opposite is true of us. We are defiled, we are unclean, and anything we touch is automatically defiled. Notice the application, verse 14. Then Haggai answered and said, So is this people, and so is the nation before me, declares Yahweh, and so is every work of their hands, what they bring near to me is unclean. Remember this nation, kind of a rebuke. It's not my people. It's 
this nation is unclean and everything they touch is defiled. Right? Uncleanness is, is highly contagious in the law. You have to be super careful. Now, now, what's the point here in this context? He's trying to encourage them, right? We're, we're going we're gonna to get to see why that is. But apparently they've been confused as to why they've been facing discipline. Because they've been offering their sacrifices upon Yahweh's altar. You remember that even though they haven't built the temple, they did build the altar. The, the text there, right, it says, what they bring near to me. That's speaking about animal sacrifices. Remember Leviticus 1.5, the only way we draw near to God is through blood sacrifices because we're sinners. So they're, okay, we're, we're bringing these sacrifices near to God. Why, why isn't he blessing us? Why is he disciplining us? And God says, because your disobedience in not rebuilding the temple is defiling every other thing you're doing. Your sacrifices have been tainted by your disobedience. And this principle is the same for us, right? Mark, 17, Mark 7, 14 through 23. Jesus explains this same concept. It's not the outward stuff that defiles us. It's, it's our sinfulness on the inside that defiles everything we touch. The, un, the unregenerate is like a, a whitewashed tomb, Jesus says. On the inside, there's these rotting bones. In Ephesians 2, we're, we're dead, we're cadavers. Man's problem so often is, is that we minimize our sins. I was thinking about the common illustration, even amongst Christians, that sin is missing the mark. And we take that illustration, which is a good illustration, but, but I think we, we misapply it. Because we, we think this idea is like we're at this archery contest, and we draw back our bow, and we aim for the bullseye, and we let it fly, and it's like we just missed. Like we tried real hard, we aimed at the right target. The better illustration of a sinner would be the man that hates that archery contest. And he's not even shooting anywhere near the targets. And he gets in trouble, and so he gets so mad at the judge of that contest that he draws his bow and kills the judge's son, landing the arrow exactly where he wanted to. Right? That's, that's our wickedness. We're terrible sinners. And we need the word of God to show us our sin. We, we need to show, we need to be shown how sinful we really are. Because that's the only way that they're going to be able to repent and receive God's blessing. Uh, the word of God, remember, in, in James 1 is like a mirror. It reveals to us what we actually are, how sinful we actually are. <laughs> the unbeliever, right, he, he, thinks, he thinks himself, you know, pretty, pretty handsome. <laughs> thinks he looks pretty good. And then, and then he picks up the Bible and he sees himself in a mirror and he realizes that he's a rotting corpse. Right? A skull with, with no eyes to see and no ears to hear. And what he thought was his tongue is actually a serpent slithering out of his mouth's orifice. I mean, isn't that what Paul tells us in Romans 3? Right, their throat is an open grave. The poison of asps is under their lips. You say, well, Josiah, but I'm a Christian. I'm beautiful now. Yeah, I mean, yes, Jesus has washed us clean. He has, and we should praise him. We're clean on the inside now. And so we can draw near to God and offer him acceptable worship. Hebrews 10, 14, we've been perfected. 
in God's court were completely sinless, and that is a blessing. But don't forget Romans 7, that you're not free from your flesh just yet. You carry that rotting corpse, that, that putrid flesh of your past. Your old man is still strapped to you, eating away at you. And you best be killing it every day or it will kill you and defile everything you touch. Everything our flesh touches, it defiles. Sin corrupts everything. Which is why Jesus says in Matthew 5, 23, remember he says, if you're at the altar and you're about to offer a sacrifice and there you remember that you're in sin and your brother has something against you, what do you do? Don't offer it. It's going to be defiled by your sin. He says, first go, make things right, repent, then come back and worship. So that explains the principle. God has been disciplining them up until this point because of their sin. And that's another great reason to obey God because the only way we're going to receive his blessing is when we repent and we obey. But now things are going to be different for Israel. Notice verse 4. Yahweh blesses despite past sin. So verse 15, but now, oh, set your heart to consider from this day onward. Things are going to be different is the idea. He says, from before one stone was set on another in the temple of Yahweh. So I think the way to understand this is that now they have all the prep done. They have all the materials and they're about to set the first stone down in place. He says, you're, you're going to set down your first stone. So, play on words, you're going to set down your first stone. So, set your heart to consider. Think. Consider. I want you to watch what's going to happen. I want you to see the difference. There's going to be a stark contrast in the way that I have been disciplining you and the way that I'm going to bless you. I want to notice. I want you to notice it. This is verse 16. H- how did things go before? Verse 16. From... From when it was that one came to a grain heap of 20 measures, then there'd only be 10. And from when one came to the wine vat to draw 50 troughs full, then there would only be 20. So he's saying, remember how much your sin cost you? The past discipline? You remember how I did not bless you when you disobeyed? You came to a grain heap where the grain was stored, and there's supposed to be, 50, supposed to be 20 measures, and then all of a sudden, 50% of it is gone. There's only 10 left. No explanation as to whether it was stolen. Maybe the barn was supposed to hold 20 measures, but they only reaped 10. But it's the same thing for the wine. It's as if they stomped 10 troughs full, and then only 20 were left. The idea, again, is that God is actively disciplining them for their sin. Verse 17, he, he, he says, I struck you, and every work of your hands was scorching wind and mildew and hail, yet you did not come back to me, declares Yahweh. So God was disciplining them like a a father who loves his son. For 16 years, he's tried to help them to repent, to turn back. He's been applying these covenant curses, remember, Deuteronomy 28, 22, wind and mildew. Hail, that's one of the plagues in Egypt, Deuteronomy 28, 60. He's trying to help them repent, but they would not. But then verse 18, oh, set your heart to consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, From the day when the temple of Yahweh was founded, set your heart to consider. So now things are going to be different. Now on this day, you have founded, you have repaired the foundation of my temple. So consider this day. 
Watch what's going to happen. Makes this comparison. Verse 19. Is the seed still in the barn? Even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree? It is not born fruit. So remember, it's December. So the seed is not in the barn. The seed has probably already been planted is the idea. And the point is that up until this point, there's been no hope of an abundant harvest. There's been nothing to look forward to because God has been disciplining them. But today, they've prepared the foundation. Today, they're about to lay the first stone down. And so this harvest is going to be different. End of verse 19. Yet from this day on, I will bless you. I mean, this is, I mean if, you, if you're tracking with his argument, this is amazing grace. Right? Any other God would wait until the temple was finished to bless them. It takes them four years to build this temple. Ezra gives us the day in Ezra 5.15. It was finished in 516 BC, four years later. So this is amazing. They've just repaired the foundation. There's literally nothing on top. They haven't even, played the f- they haven't even laid the first stone down. I mean, you know what a foundation of a building looks like. It's nothing. They said that. This is I mean, it's nothing. But today they've started the work. They've started, they're just about to start laying the first stones down. And in that instant that God had worked repentance in their heart and given them that desire to obey, he says, mark this day down on your calendars. Because I want you to see that now it's going to be different. I'm going to bless you. God's heart is so amazingly large. He, He longs to bless his children. He loves to forgive. He's like that father who, who buys a gift for his child because he wants them to enjoy it and love it. And then and the child throws a tantrum. And so he can't give him the gift. And it just like eats him up inside. Like he's begging his son, his daughter to repent because they want to give him that gift and watch him enjoy it. God delights in being a rewarder of those who seek him. He's so gracious, so magnanimous with us. Psalm 32, 7, David finally confesses his sin with Bathsheba. And he says, you surround me with songs of deliverance. And what, a, what an amazing truth. And I think we all know this, right? And we've all experienced this. When you sin, God's disciplining hand is heavy upon you. It saps you of your strength. It eats you up. Everything is wrong. And then God's spirit works repentance in your heart. And you confess. And you do not wait around for God to bless you. You don't wait for God's countenance to shine upon you. The joy of your salvation is instantly returned. And you sing with David, how blessed, how happy is the man that has been forgiven, whose sin is covered. And God tells you, 2 Peter 1.9. Now, I don't even want you to ever think about that Again, I want you to remember that you've been forgiven of your past sins. Don't don't live in that shame. Live in the fullness of my joy and the fullness of my blessing. And so this too should be strong motivation to obey, to receive that blessing. David says, don't be a mule that has to be forced to confess. Confess now. When you do, God's going to bless you. And not just bless you instantly, he's going to bless you eternally. Look at this last point. Reason number five, Yahweh will bless through his king. 
Verse 20, then the word of Yahweh came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying. Notice the date, so important. This is the exact same day. So no hesitation, no waiting. The word of Yahweh came to Haggai a second time on the same day. Also, I think a little foreshadowing here. If you've been paying super close attention, you notice that there's something missing in this date. Because Haggai's given us a lot of dates. He doesn't say it's in the second year of Darius. And I think that's because he's about to talk about the true king who's coming. Verse 21, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. Again, he calls Zerubbabel the governor. Again, reminding us that Israel has no king, not yet. But I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. That's the same massive end times quake referred to in 2.6. And now we're going to get to see why God is going to shake this whole universe, the whole cosmos. Because he wants to remake it and get it ready for his son, the true king. He's going to kill all of Jesus' enemies and make them a footstool for his feet. Verse 22, I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the strength of the kingdoms and the nations. And I will overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders will go down. Everyone by the sword of another. Overthrow and destroy. It's the language of Genesis 19.25 when God overthrew Sodom. God's going to bring all the earthly kingdoms down in the apocalypse. Horse and rider, reminiscent of Exodus 15 and the drowning of Pharaoh's army. Everyone will be killed by the sword of another. He's going to cause the whole world to sort of self-destruct, killing each other. And all the kingdoms of the earth will literally be turned upside down, overthrown and replaced with Christ's perfect, unshakable kingdom. Remember Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 2? All the kingdoms of the earth are, are pictured as this statue, remember? And then came this stone cut not by human hands and just decimates that statue and replaces it with this massive, unshakable mountain that fills the entire world. Christ's kingdom is worldwide dominion. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. All the power in the entire world centralized in one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 23, and on that day, declares Yahweh of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares Yahweh, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares Yahweh of hosts. Now, it's interesting. I think we get the sense that this whole book is like moving towards this crescendoing climax where something amazing is going to happen, and then we read it, Zerubbabel, you're going to be my signet ring. It's like, kind of a dud like like what it doesn't seem as big as it's like it's got to be something really big but but what is it okay so we got just a few minutes here i need you to put your thinking caps on there's this is a complex verse notice a few things notice how emphatic this is it says i will take you i will make you i have chosen you then there's the verb choice the verb i will make you is actually the same verb to set that's used seven times in this book Five times translated, set your heart to consider. And it's this word play, this contrast. God tells the people, you set your heart to consider, and I'll set Zerubbabel as my signet ring. Well, what does that mean? Well, the signet ring of a king was used to communicate the king's authority. If I'm a king, I write an edict, and then I 
seal it with my signet ring. And when I do that, I've invested it with all my authority. If someone has my ring, they can act on my authority, kingly authority. We see that actually in 1 Kings 21.8, when Jezebel sneakily gets her husband's ring and writes a letter with her husband Ahab's seal. Now here's the key. Turn to Jeremiah 22. Jeremiah 22. We'll kind of finish here in Jeremiah 22. When God carried Israel off into exile into Babylon, the most devastating thing that he did was to cast off the Davidic kingly line. Notice in Jeremiah 22, 24, this is just before captivity. God says, As I live, declares Yahweh, even though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, yet I would pull you off. So Yahweh takes the Yahweh out of Jeconiah's name. He calls him Coniah, and then he says, you're not my signet ring anymore. You don't have my authority to reign on my behalf anymore. The royal line of David seems dead. Even worse, if we continue, look at verse 30, Jeremiah twenty-two thirty. God says of Jeconiah, write this man down childless, a man who will not succeed in his days, for no man of his seed will succeed sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. It's over for Jeconiah's line. No descendant of Jeconiah can ever sit on David's throne. And hopefully, if you know your Bibles, your head is spinning right now, especially that you know, if you know that in Matthew chapter 1, Jeconiah is in Jesus' genealogy. So, how do we understand this? Well, I think there might be some near fulfillment. Things did get a little bit better for Israel in the time of Zerubbabel. But obviously, there's something bigger going on here. And when we look at Haggai 2.23 in more detail, we know that it, we see that it's filled with messianic language. Right, God calls him my servant. If you know your Old Testament, you know you got all these bells and whistles going off because my servant is often a reference to the Messiah, uh, Jesus, described as I- Isaiah fifty-three as Yahweh's servant who dies for the sins of his people. We also need to know that sometimes in the Old Testament, the name of someone in the messianic line is used to describe Jesus. For example. Often, Jesus is described with the name David. In Jeremiah 30, verse 9, Jeremiah says, They shall serve Yahweh their God and David my king. Ezekiel 34, 23, I will establish over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will shepherd them. So when God says to Zerubbabel what he does about being a signet ring, He's speaking to Zerubbabel, yes, but he's speaking also to the representative of the Messianic line at the time, which culminates in Christ. God is promising to to rebuild this line. When when God says, Zerubbabel, I'm making you my signet ring again. I'm going to give you all my authority to reign upon earth on my behalf. He's speaking to Zerubbabel to be sure, but more so to the one who Zerubbabel represents. He's promising to renew the Davidic line, which ultimately points to the greater Zerubbabel, to Jesus Christ. Christ is the one who has all God's authority to reign on earth forever and ever. Every knee shall bow to him. Every tongue confess his lordship. All his enemies will lie lifeless under his feet. In the inimitable words of Isaac Watts, Jesus will reign 
overall. Jesus will reign wherever the sun does its successful journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moons shall wax and wane no more. But what, a, what an honor for Zerubbabel to know that his actions of rebuilding the temple were foreshadowing and preparing the way for his son to rule forever. God had chosen Zerubbabel to be this link that connected David back to Jesus. And I think it's great motivation for us as well to obey, knowing that our obedience, like Zerubbabel's, bears fruit in eternity in ways that we can't even comprehend. I know I'm out of time, but let's make our conclusion trying to answer this question then. How, why is Jeconiah in Jesus' genealogy in Matthew 1 if he was cursed? Because this is, this is startling. This is amazing. In Matthew chapter 1, Jesus traces his legal lineage through Joseph and the whole line of the Messiah. It goes through the kingly line, right? Zerubbabel, Jeconiah, Josiah, Hezekiah, all the way back to David. And that's what gives Jesus the legal right to sit on David's throne. But remember that Jesus was not a biological son of Jeconiah. Jesus got zero DNA from Joseph, which is why Luke's genealogy is so helpful because it shows us Mary's genealogy. And guess what? Mary is also a descendant of David, but not through the royal kingly line. It goes David and not Solomon, David, Nathan, to then Jesus. Amazingly, possibly through a leveret marriage, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, also appears in Mary's genealogy, showing us once again that God is using Zerubbabel in this singular way to get David's line back on David's throne. And it's just incredible how God does it, because ultimately the virgin birth is the only way that God could do that. The only way that God could guarantee that Jeconiah's biological son never sat on the throne, but also guarantee that David's son, through Zerubbabel, sat on the throne, was the virgin birth. A man who legally had a father who was in the kingly line and biologically had a mother who was David's biological son. You talk about accuracy. You talk about precision. You talk about faithfulness. Whatever God promises you is yes and amen in Christ. It's always fulfilled. And it's this Christ who died and rose on the third day who offers his instant and everlasting blessing to us. What a motivation to repent and obey. Lift up your head, discouraged soul. Do not wait any longer. Look to Christ. Look to his cross. Look to his finished work. Do, and I guarantee you, you will be blessed before you can say amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. We thank you for your spirit who gives us new life, new birth, new desires, new ability to see the beauty and the glory of Christ. We pray that you would work repentance and obedience in us, that we could worship you with joyful hearts. We thank you for your blessings that we receive through Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.